0: This is the We Are Outdoorsmen podcast, built by outdoorsmen for outdoorsmen. Presented by Herod Outdoors and Max Luer. Oh,
1: top,
0: top line just got
1: this. where it is. <laughs> yeah, that was my fault. There we go.
2: She does it again. Oh, welcome <laughs> back to another episode of the We Are Outdoorsman podcast presented by Herit Outdoors and Max Lure. I'm Britton, Richie, and Bobby are in the studio as well. And we have a special, special sound coming.
3: He wouldn't give me the turkey call.
2: I- I, didn't, I, I couldn't hear anything coming remotely. It really? must have been too loud. It is loud. Yeah. I, <laughs> Trust
3: I, me. I, I, tur- I turned away it from the speaker because I didn't want to blow it
2: out. So so that's actually nice. So the technical difficulties are helping my eardrums over here.
0: Yeah, there you go. Uh,
2: so today on the podcast, we are going to be joined by John Cruz, who's going to help us remember a man who made a big difference in the Columbia River Basin, uh, Mike Beesberg.
0: Yep, that's, uh, it's a great conversation. Of course, uh, John knew Mike really well, and so he had a lot of nice things to say, he knew exactly what he's been doing. He talked with uh, Mike's family and got some remembrance from them. So, yeah, it's a great conversation. And uh, actually, I didn't really realize how many things Mike Meesberg has actually done for well, us. You know, people don't realize what, what he did on potholes.
3: When it was first made with the Reclamation District, when all of that that stuff was backed up and and drains from Banks Lake, yeah, all yeah. the way down through the system, right? There was nothing there. There was nothing but sand dunes and and nothing. Yeah, the conservation that they did on that lake in creating habitat in in building up the bass fisheries, the walleye fisheries, the perch fisheries,
0: creating something that didn't exist. Yeah, and waterfowl habitat. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So and that and of course. And he's the beginning of the duck taxi. Oh yeah, he, he and his dad, and that and that's kind of interesting too, you know. Yeah, I just thought it was and pretty. And duck kebabs. And duck kebabs. Yep, exactly. <laughs> so, and of course Shelby's carrying on that tradition. So yeah, John and I talk about all that, but yeah, it's uh, kind of sad. A uh, pretty young, really. You yeah. Battle cancer. I think he was seventy-one or two. Yeah. Not very old. No. So I'm... it's a big loss.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: It's unfortunate. Yeah.
2: Yeah, very, very sad, but uh, it'll be cool to listen to John, kind of remember all the stuff that uh, Mike did for the the region, the, the industry, and, and potholes in general. So on a brighter note, did you guys get out and uh, hunt any birds? I did. Yeah, I went and
0: shot a whole limit of quail with uh, nice. Eric, Eric Broughton. We, the day before the last day of the season, he and I and uh, another friend of his, we went out and... Put the smack down. They they didn't invite me. I had to sit at home by myself. Yeah. But I did
3: I did go out on my uh on my birthday and duck hunted on the river. Went and jumped
2: jump birds. And... He he shot a bunch too. Yeah. I can't believe recording it recording on the twenty third. So Bobby is now um seventy years old. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, oh my god. <laughs> Oh, I my forgot God. to uh I forgot to wish you a happy birthday.
0: Yeah. Oh goodness. Oh man. <laughs> 70 years old. <laughs> you know what? It was kinda of like it yesterday because I called him up and he forgot all these things that he had told me.
2: I, 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 he was, I lost my mind. He's been calling me for three days. He's been calling me for three days trying to remember literally anything. <laughs> I know that he was trying to bring up. And then he texted me late last night and he's like, Oh, I remember from a call on Saturday.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah I called him Saturday and I couldn't remember why.
2: Yeah, he we could We were just sitting there talking. Yeah,
0: well, he couldn't remember anything.
3: Well, because of some other issues, I have some added tasks lately, so <laughs> I I've been I've been a little scattered, okay? <laughs> I've been a little scattered.
2: I've been a little scattered as well. Uh, we'll get to that a later podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh,
0: i think you guys are just scattered yeah i don't know i don't know about
3: oh lately it's
2: scatter season for sure (laughs) yeah
3: oh yeah we're going to uh, shows
2: yeah and you know we're also getting the wenatchee salmon derby set up yeah and we we scheduled it uh for (laughs) july 19th and 20th (laughs) and i'm getting married on the 20th down in southwest (laughs) washington to Bobby's niece, so he can't be at the Derby, I can't be at the Derby, and you're not going to be able to help at the Derby. No. And so, yeah, just a free-for-all Derby, it's I gonna guess. It's going to be a free-for-all Derby, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, act-
3: I'm actually getting together with the- with the group this
2: week, so we'll sit down and h- iron things out a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, super convenient I, though. I, 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 I'm sure we're gonna miss the BB Bridge location. Yeah, Rick, Rick goes. You just didn't want to show up
3: there because all the bugs and the sprinklers, yeah. right?
0: <laughs> Maybe. Yeah.
2: Yeah, hundred degree weather, and obviously we're doing this for a good cause, so I'm not complaining. But <laughs> you sit, you sit there for like nine, ten hours, and you know, right before the booth closes at like six o'clock. It's just a mad scrum. You, get, you see one person all day, and then everyone comes and weighs fish at the same time. It's really fun by yourself, <laughs> Rick, if you're listening. Uh, I took one for the team last year, so have fun. <laughs> <laughs> Bobby had the Hooked on Toys location. And how many fish do you weigh last year? Oh. You have like two groups come through.
3: No, I actually had more, actually, than usual. I had, had like, maybe four or five groups. I, yeah, last year I had more than, than we usually get because generally they w- we'll weigh in one group of fish and that's it. But I had, like, four or five. Yeah, so. it's really
2: fun, too, when the scale starts going bonkers and you have, like, 40 fish away. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. All little, like, one-pound sockeye. Yeah.
3: No, 1.12 pounds Yeah, right
2: Yeah, (laughs) 1.12 pounds So that's been fun Uh, uh, We are also, as we're recording, getting ready for the Sportsman shows Which we've talked about ad nauseum If you didn't, go check out the podcast from a few weeks ago Where we had Billy Lachlan on to talk about the history of the show And uh, what's going on for this year's shows You... Prepared and ready to rock, Richie? Um, By the time people hear this, they'll have uh, already probably seen us at the booths.
0: Yeah, I'm getting there. And uh, yeah, by the time they listen to this, I'll I'll have been in the groove. I don't don't
3: know if I'm going to make it because I have to do a bunch of things that somebody else didn't do. Pull out the booth and find the panel that's broken and pull it out and find another panel to put in its place and... Oh my god listen
2: I I I had to do um, both these shows last year by myself. You would remember that Richie. I do remember I that. didn't have I didn't have any help at all last year and um, this <laughs> is just again like the Rick thing at BB it's just passing the love along
3: yeah
0: <laughs> Oh right. I've done these for 42 years
2: no, I, think I really
0: you've... wait a minute I think you've not done them for several years now
3: no. I just uh, last no.
0: last year was
3: He doesn't do year. Puyallup I No, I don't I I haven't been. You I'm are this Puyallup.
2: year. You you will have done it this year. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's
3: true.
2: Yeah. Hey, I'm still doing the Portland show. So. Uh,
3: okay. Okay. Are you going to show up up at Puyallup
2: Um, I may be able to come up and help set up. Well, stop well. by the house for a whiskey. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. We might have some whiskey. I'm not sure. I got some right here, I'm though. I'm sure they'll
2: be. Got yeah, my, no, I have my... You got your wood my, family? We are at in yeah. Special Coffee. No, again, I am out of wood family spirits. I am cookie dough. It's the cookie dough. Cookie dough mornings are pretty good mornings. Um, that's the, the dough ball. Yeah. Alyssa sells it. It's very good in coffee. I was
3: going to say that that would be really good, especially added with a little extra whiskey in the yeah. special coffee. Yeah. That that would be good.
0: Yeah, it's good. Well, I,
3: I, I you know what I might have to go. Are you drinking coffee this morning, or what are you drinking? Oh, no, I'm I'm drinking Wood Family Spirits, and yeah, I, I got I got it going on. Yeah. Hey, we, those 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 folks are our... good too. You know, the bad thing is, huh? doing my job, I had to give a couple bottles away. What? Yeah. Why? To a customer, potential customer for Wood Family Spirits. Oh, so good job! Yeah, but let, that, but that Tom... means that that means I'm down now too. Oh. Well, no, actually, well, yeah, I'm down too. I had to give them each one a one of each. Yeah, one of each.
0: So, oh god, he's in trouble.
2: Yeah, I, I'll come to the club.
0: Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, you're gonna have to go across and buy it now.
2: Yeah,
3: so. Something we have you, any news he, currently, but they changed the subject on that one really yeah, quick, he did,
2: didn't he? He, he did. <laughs> no, I was talking about how you know there's things in the works at Wood Family Spirits, and there there are. You know, hopefully, hopefully at some point soon, it's, it's going to be pretty readily available.
0: Yeah. So yeah. we have some announcements for them coming up. We we have nothing we can share at the moment, but it's yeah, just tease. It's uh you want to stay tuned and listen. Because there's some good things in the works.
2: I have something to change this subject to that I'm pretty upset about. So when I moved down here, I was super stoked. I hate snow. I was stoked <laughs> to not have snow. And last week, I woke up to what had to have been the most intense blizzard I've ever seen. Like 40 mile an hour winds and just... You never saw a snowflake falling down. It was all 100% horizontal to the windowsill. And we got seven inches of snow down here, which was then followed up by (laughs) mm, four days of freezing rain. And (laughs) so you're just stuck, right? Every road. I, I didn't leave the house from Saturday night until Friday morning. (laughs) Jeez. <laughs> 'Cause every road was closed.
3: Well it's it when stuff like that happens down there oh my that gosh. shuts everything every,
0: down. Oh my god, does it ever it's like Armageddon. I got stuck for five days in Portland in an apartment with no electricity because of that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs>
3: And I really kept giving so, I
0: kept giving him a bad time about you know,
3: you're gonna lose your power because down there it does. It, it, well it breaks it, all the power lines. If somebody looks at
2: something wrong down there, they lose their power.
0: Yeah, but all that ice on all the power lines oh, is yeah. just terrible.
2: Surprisingly, during the ice storm, we only lost like power like just very intermittently. It wasn't mm-hmm. bad. I this morning I was late to podcast because our power just went out for no reason. It's nice out. The snow's off the ground. It's an absolute pond out there just standing water everywhere because of the big melt but i didn't uh my phone was dead this morning woke up had no idea what time it was uh, <laughs> kind of forgot that we were recording podcast and then you know naturally you hear the the duck hunters down below the house and uh that's what woke. We'll, up yep. and i was like oh i'll have to go podcast now <laughs>
0: You know, the bad thing about that is he keeps it around his neck. Unlike the turkey doll, yeah. which he could just set down.
2: It's wild. I'm not picking that up. I just see him blowing into it on the team call, but I don't hear it. Well, that's crazy. I don't know how how I maneuvered that, but it's nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Richie's over there. Well, everybody else will hear
3: Yeah, <laughs>
2: everybody else is going to hear it. Yep. But,
3: oh, let's get back to my birthday. Oh, yeah, that's right. I had fun. Yeah. I, yeah
2: what did you do on your birthday
3: i on my birthday i went duck hunting in the morning and i had a great day it was the first time did that you, i've seen birds on the river in two years
2: did you shoot some ducks oh yeah yeah
3: i, I ended up killing a limit of birds nice yeah and and it wasn't all all the typical ring neck blue bill it wasn't huh no all of them were either mallards or widgeons wow yeah how'd you get so lucky <laughs> i'm gonna tell you what
0: i couldn't find a chucker to save my life yeah that's been a tough one this year chuckers yeah. i don't know what happened to chuckers with
3: with that snow there's there's certain spots and areas that they go to where they you know head come to the water, the, come down yeah. you know i i never found a chucker in fact i never saw a quail yeah which is
0: absolutely unheard
3: that's of that's weird yeah
0: i don't know chuckers are low in this part of the world i think when you find one it's uh well, I don't know. Yeah. It's and a so unicorn.
3: I, and so I get I get home at, at, you know, I don't know, 11, something like that. I step out of the rig, and what do I hear? Chuckers behind the house. Oh, of course.
2: Yeah.
3: <laughs> or you can't hunt them. Yeah. <laughs>
2: well, I'm sure you have doves.
3: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The yeah, Eurasians. I, the Eurasians, they, they, they come in to the backyard quite a bit.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Over Christmas, I saw how many of them come back <laughs> yeah. in the yard.
1: So,
3: I, and you know what I've got? I've got quite a few. We haven't got together, and I was going to make my typical bacon wrap, jalapeno, cream cheese with Eurasian doves. Uh, Poppers. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Soak them in Yoshida's sauce for a day, and then put them on the grill. Oh, oh man! Oh man! We
0: we call those duck butts, but with I don't know dove butts, I guess. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: Dove butts. Dove butts. Well, we're going to go fix up some dubas, And when we come back, we're going to be joined by John Cruz. And it's going to be a great conversation.
0: Well, today I have the pleasure of speaking with award-winning host John Cruz. He's the host of Northwestern Outdoors Radio and America Outdoors Radio. How are you doing,
1: John? You know, it's a little bit chilly outside, but that's okay. Otherwise, I'm doing just fine.
0: (laughs) Yes, it is a little bit chilly. I I hope it warms up a bit, but actually... We've been looking for ice to go fishing. So maybe this has been a good thing after all.
1: Well, I suspect Fish Lake should provide some very good fishing very soon.
0: I hope so. We're looking forward to that. So, John, uh, the purpose of our conversation today is you wrote a very nice article in Northwest Sportsman's Magazine about Mike Meesberg, who recently passed. And I thought maybe it'd be nice for our listeners to hear about Mike and his contributions. But before we do that... I want folks to know a little bit more about you. The Northwestern Outdoors Radio has been on air since 2008, and you are on 69 stations in the greater Pacific Northwest. That includes some states a little bit outside, but uh, tell, tell me when uh, and why you started getting into radio, John.
1: Happenstance, quite frankly. I was uh, an outdoors writer uh, starting in about 2000, 2001, was writing for, at the time, Fishing and Hunting News and... You know, publications like Salmon Trout, Steelheader, Fur, Fish, and Game, and doing some newspaper work too. And then I was also a police sergeant at the same time in the city of Wenatchee, and I was the public information officer. So Eric Grandstrom, who was with uh, News Radio 560 KPQ at the time, wanted to put together an outdoor show for the weekends. The problem was nobody at the station outside of Eric himself had any experience with outdoors activities or fishing or hunting or anything like that. So he knew I could talk on the radio because we talked like two, three times a week about police stuff. And he knew I could write because he read my articles. So he says, hey, do you want to do a little three-minute piece? So so starting in 2003, I would go in like 6.30 in the morning before I went to work, and I would record a little three-minute piece. Might be a how-to, might be a destination piece. And that aired on... It was called The Great Outdoors for five years. In 2007, actually, so four years, 2007, Eric left the station and they approached me and said, would you like to do the hour long show, a live show? Hmm. And I said, yes, I was absolutely horrible. I was just the worst. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I started getting a little bit better over time. But I mean, I remember one of my worst moments was I wasn't very good in terms of, you know, following the clock. I had a board operator that worked with me who would kind of cue me, but I was talking about some outdoors activity, and and we get a phone call. You know, it's like, oh, we've got a caller. What would you like to talk about? Caller says, would you shut up and just play the fruit frost forecast? I'm an orchardist. I'm more interested in that than you.
0: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, John, I'm I'm glad you stuck with it because you do a wonderful job. And and as I mentioned, as we opened there, you have won several awards for your work with radio and you've even expanded to America Outdoors Radio. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah. So, you know, uh, I did eventually get better and we were able to really grow Northwestern Outdoors Radio and then America Outdoors Radio. Uh, we launched that when I retired from being a police officer in 2016, and I grew it myself at first, uh, eventually went to Talk Media Network, and they find stations for me now, and we're up to 135 stations in 33 states, so that's a lot of fun. You know, Obviously, it's a national focus with uh, America Outdoors Radio, for example, this weekend we're talking to a, a guide on the Clearwater River in Idaho about winter fishing opportunities, Especially Steelhead. But then we're going to Devil's Lake, North Dakota for an ice fishing report. And then we're going to uh, Ohio to talk to a very well known walleye guide and his partnership with a company known for bass baits. It's going into the walleye company foray. And yeah, and then we're talking about uh, Sportsman's Cove Lodge in Alaska. So kind of going all over the country this week talking fishing.
0: Well, that's what I like about your shows, John, is that it's a variety of things, things that are current. You're also not afraid to tackle some tougher issues that are challenging us as sportsmen here in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, it's a great show, and if, if you folks have never listened to one of John's radio shows, I encourage you to go to his website at www.northwesternoutdoorsradio.com. Again, northwesternoutdoorsradio.com. You can find all the stations that he airs on and tune in and listen because uh he's got a lot of great content so we're happy you're doing it john
1: well i'm happy to do it i sure enjoy it and uh you know you put out some pretty good content yourself my friend
0: well i appreciate it so what we're here to talk about today unfortunately one of the great sportsmen here in the pacific northwest has passed recently mike Meesberg, who was uh co-owner of the mardon resort at Potholes Reservoir, somebody that John's known for a very long time. And you wrote a great article in Northwest Sportsman's Magazine. And I thought it'd be good for our listeners to know just how much Mike contributed to, you know, the sportsman here in the Pacific Northwest. So maybe let's start with when did you meet Mike?
1: You know, it was somewhere between 25 and 30 years ago when I first started going to Mardon Resort with my family. And usually you'd find Mike up in the store. And he would, he was very chatty. And, and I learned that if you in the store for five minutes, you know, you tell the, the wife, I'm going to be in the store for five minutes. You'd come back like 20, 30 minutes later. Right. He just, he just loved to talk, but a very generous and kind man and always willing to give you fishing or hunting advice so you could be successful. And we just kind kind of became friends after a while when I started the radio show. Uh, The Meeseburg family at Mardon Resort was one of the first sponsors we had. So ended up doing a lot of interviews with Mike and it, you know, they weren't just business partners. I mean, I, I love the Meeseburg family Mm -hmm. and I love what they've done with the resort. And, you know, it's just a a real shame that we've lost Mike. He was 71, uh, passed away on December 26th at home. Family was actually gathered there for a, you know, Christmas time celebration and, he didn't come downstairs and uh he just passed away and he'd been battling cancer for four years he'd also had a stroke and he'd just been having a really tough time so as as sad as i am to see him go it's probably a blessing because he was in some pain
0: yeah yeah exactly it's tough for a family when somebody's that sick and struggling like that and and like you say it's never easy to some degree it it can be a, a blessing in disguise uh you know, Mike, not only did he run the uh, Mardon Resort there, but he also <laughs> ran the duck taxi, which now Shelby Ross does. And and I understand that's where, you know, the whole thing with the duck kebabs came from. Is that right?
1: It is. And uh, the history of the duck taxi is pretty interesting. So when it first started, they would take, I mean, it was just a taxi. It wasn't a guide service. They would just bury people out into the sand dunes you know, like maybe 18 different groups and sometimes more than that. And they just pick them up at the end of the morning. So that morphed into just a couple of non-guided blinds, uh, but then the guided hunts that were back in the sand dunes as well. And on those guided hunts, they found that something that was really slick that people would come back for was taking some of the, the birds that were harvested, resting them out and cooking up duck kebabs in the blind over charcoal briquettes in a bucket and it's just fabulous after a morning of hunting oh. having these duck kebabs with with pineapple or peppers and some sausage and it's just the the perfect end to any hunt when you get to enjoy the duck kebabs towards the end of the, the day
0: yeah and you know shelby he's carried that on and made some own his own creations with that and and uh, i've course do my own with the, the cooking that we do too but the ones that we have in the duck blind just can't hardly be beat and shelby does a great job with that and so the, the the kebabs have a long history and and that's pretty neat and nice to see that shelby's carrying that on so he purchased the mardon resort in 1972 but then his uh he had some partnership there his brother was involved his wife of course is a family affair but they did a tremendous amount to make that the resort we know
1: today. Yeah, it was it was actually Rod Meesberg, Mike's dad, and his mom that came over from Western Washington. And I, I want to say he worked at Boeing, Rod did. But he came over, bought Mardon Resort from the original owners who had had it in the 1950s. Potholes Reservoir was just created in 1949 when they put in O'Sullivan Dam. And it's operated primarily as an irrigation reservoir. So... Uh, the Meesebergs bite in 72, and Mike takes it over, I want to say, in the, the 1990s, with okay. his wife, Marilyn.
0: Gotcha, gotcha.
1: And Mike's brother, Dave, was also involved in running the resort. And after about 2000, Rod passed away in 1999. Dave decided to get out of the resort business in the early 2000s. And Mike and Marilyn brought in their two kids, now grown, Annie and Levi, and the four of them. Basically, ran Mardon Resort. And it's it's amazing what this family did in terms of making it, like you said, the resort it is today. When I first started going in the 1990s, a lot of tent sites. Uh, the wooden dock floats were definitely at the, the end of their lifespan. You had a lot of the RV sites where the hookups were at the end of their lifespan. And some of them just didn't even work in terms of the electrical hookups anymore you had two motel-style accommodations. One of them was the Bunkhouse Motel. That was known because, well, that was popular because it was very convenient to the boat launch and the store and the beach house grill there. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it also had very, very tiny bathrooms. If you were a big man, you probably weren't going to like the Bunkhouse Motel very much because (laughs) the bathrooms were super tiny. And then you had this other strip, a motel strip, down by the swim beach. And I remember staying there the first time with my family. I want to say it was built right after the resort was built. It wasn't cool with air conditioning. It was actually cooled with swamp coolers. So that was the starting point. And so the Meesbergs they they started by taking out uh, the Strip Motel and putting in park cottages, these park model cottages. And those were a huge hit. So they initially put in four. I want to say there's close to 10 on the resort now. Mm -hmm. And they all put in some camper cabins and they put in some other roofed accommodations uh, a couple across the street from the resort that are really good for families and then just about a year and a half ago they tore down the old bunkhouse motel and they put in five really nice two-bed one-bath cabins uh, that are right where the bunkhouse motel was before and they completely renovated all the rv spots they expanded the resort uh, almost double in size now and also full of, of nice RV spots and uh, um, more cut camper cabins and park cottages. And they even put in a putt-putt golf course. And, yes, they also replaced the, the wooden dock floats. And it's just a first-class destination now. It really is.
0: I agree completely. And, and it, it's really a testament to all the work that's done just by driving by there in any, just about any day in the warm months, you know, when people are out doing things with their family that the resort is just packed with people and so all that work was uh greatly appreciated by a whole lot of people and it's not only the work that he did to make the resort what it is but he also did a lot of work to make the fisheries what it is there at potholes and one of the things you mentioned in your article is he was involved with uh, helping improve fisheries which for a time are really good in the reservoir until Mount St. Helens erupted. And that kind of changed some things out there. And, and so Mike uh, really started doing a bunch of work. And so talk about him founding the central Washington fish advisory committee and the the kinds of things that he did to really improve the fisheries there in potholes,
1: the fisheries at potholes, we really take it for granted. I mean, it's, it's regularly named one of the best 25 uh, bass fishing lakes in the western U.S. by Bassmaster Magazine. Walleye anglers know it as probably the premier place to go walleye fishing. Uh, maybe tied with Banks Lake, but just a, a great place for walleye. Quality rainbow trout fishery. One to three pound trout. Rainbows are very common. And catfish and the panfish. The, the crappie, the bluegill, perch, all great size and, and very abundant. So that's what we've been enjoying for like the last 10 years. But if you go back uh, to the 60s and 70s, again, the reservoir was was uh, filled in 1949 when the dam was built, and there was severe overfishing for panfish, crappie, bluegill, uh, perch. You know, people were literally taking fish home by the bucket, five-gallon bucket, and then you had, like you said, Mount St. Helens blue. and so you have all this ash that fell, and a lot of it ended up on the bottom of Potholes Reservoir and in the sand dunes, and it's completely smothered the whole 1980 spawn. They lost everything in terms of, you know, there was no spawn in 1980 uh, because all the eggs were completely smothered. The other problem that was happening was that all this flooded brush from 1949 was pretty much degraded. So you have no brush in the, the main reservoir. You have this, you know, all this silt and ash Uh, at the bottom of the reservoir and you have these small fish that are being born in the sand dunes but come summer and early fall they're migrating out in the main reservoir and they had zero cover mike used to say it was a moonscape an absolute moonscape and they were just gobbled up by all the bigger predatory fish in the main reservoir so the fisheries by the 1990s were in serious decline everything was in serious decline and that's when it was actually Mike's dad, Rod, and a guy named Ron Sawyer founded the Central Washington Fisheries Advisory Committee. That became a 501c3 nonprofit in 2005. And a couple years prior to that, Mike had gone down to Lake Havasu because they were having similar issues there with you know losing the small forage fish. And they came up with the idea down there of making these habitat boxes. And they were basically a, a box made with PVC pipes and they had mesh netting around them. And they were dropped to the bottom of Lake Havasu. And uh, the little fish were, as long as they were in the box, they were protected from the predator fish. And they could grow to be bigger, bigger to the point where they could actually survive. So Mike brought that idea back up here. 2005, he and Levi and a bunch of volunteers started building these habitat boxes. couple twists on them instead of, Anchoring them like they did in Lake Havasu, they just drilled holes right through the PVC so they would just sink and stay there. Yeah, good and idea. And they also started some brush in the habitat boxes too. So they started dropping them at the, the major channels that were flowing into the lake. In 2007, I think they had dropped like 400, and Mike was a, a, given the uh, award of being a hero of conservation by Field and Stream Magazine for the work he was doing there. So that's 2007, 400 boxes. Today, 2024, over 3,000 habitat boxes have been dropped in, and basically formed three reefs for these fish that are coming out of like um, Frenchman's Wasteway and Crab Creek and the Center Cut Channel. They now have places to to survive and thrive until they're big enough to get out on their own.
0: Yeah, and if you're out fishing the lake and you're looking at your electronics, you're you're going to occasionally see those on the bottom. If you're wondering what that little square clump is, that's what they are, and and those are really important structures for keeping the fishery the way it is there. And, and, of course, Mike had a lot to do with that. But it wasn't just that. He was uh, also involved in helping with uh, having limits for our warm water fisheries. Because, you know, here in the Northwest, it's all about salmon and steelhead. And a lot of our warm water fisheries kind of looked down upon. But Mike was sort of a, a lone voice in that. And, and he worked... Uh, with the state's Inland Fisheries Advisory Committee. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, I like to, like to say Mike was like a, an Old Testament prophet in the wilderness. <laughs> <laughs> and his prophecies were falling on the deaf ears of WDFW fisheries managers who, like you said, it was all about salmon, trout, and steelhead, couldn't care less about the warm water fisheries and, and weren't really doing a lot to manage them. So, you know, the state's literally pushing for, like, no limits on panfish. And Mike is saying, no, you know, we need to have size limits for for walleye. We need to have size limits for, you know, crappie. For example, you can't keep a crappie under nine inches of Potholes Reservoir. And we need to have limits so that they they don't get overfished. And so he was able to establish some of these limits. And it's made a huge difference. I mean, Potholes Reservoir, you know, you can get 15, 16-inch crappie out of here now. And that's something you just couldn't do in the past when you had all this overfishing. So it was tireless work. It wasn't a one-time thing. I mean, he had to work at this a long time. In fact, he served on this committee and the Waterfowl Advisory Group uh, between the two for about 20 years.
0: Yeah, and I would say as a result of that work, we we really enjoy what I would call a world-class warm water fishery here in in North Central Washington in particular. And I know that Mike had a lot to do with that, but his work doesn't really stop there. Uh, we started out talking about the duck taxi and his involvement with that. And so he worked a lot with waterfowl conservation too. Uh, tell me about some of that. I think this is really interesting about his uh, work with the schools.
1: Yeah. So he, he did a few things. I mean, the most obvious one locally was his work with the potholes chapter at ducks unlimited Maryland, his wife basically ran that banquet, but Mike of course was the number one helper and, then you had him serving on the waterfowl advisory group and he was on the duck stamp committee. As you may recall, we used to actually have physical state duck stamps and he would help choose the duck stamp that would be used on your license for the year. And the the money from the sales of those duck stamps, just like the federal duck stamps go to national wildlife refuges, uh, these state duck stamps went to enhance wetland habitat here in Washington state. So he did that in 1992. You know, he's a devoted parent, devoted grandparent, the Royal School District, which is the, the school district around Royal City, Royal Slope in, in this area here. They didn't have a lot of money for after school programs or, or athletics. You know, it's pretty rural out here. And so Mike and several other parents came up with the idea of forming a hunt club. And the hunt club is called, still exists today. Uh, it's the Royal Slope Boosters. There's several farmers who participate. And you can buy either a three-day permit or a season permit uh, at the Mardon store. And this gives you access to 25,000 acres of land. So if you're a pheasant hunter or a quail hunter or a goose hunter or a duck hunter, uh, this is a really good way to access private land that you'd never be able to access otherwise. And it literally raised, you know, over the last 20 plus years, several hundred thousand dollars for after-school programs and athletics in the Royal School District. So that's a huge difference maker in the community.
0: Oh, I can't agree more. And, and this one really, for me, is really important. I, I don't know, hopefully folks have seen an article that I recently published in uh, Oregon Hunter Magazine that talks about hunting traditions. And, and for me, it all comes down to the ability for us who have this way of life, hunting and fishing, to be able to pass that along to the next generation and, and Mike obviously felt the same way and his work with this is just stellar. I I really can't say enough about the importance of, of what he did there. That's a real legacy if you ask me. And uh, you mentioned, John, that he was a family man and I think that is pretty clear and he was kind of a natural born teacher, lover of the outdoors. Uh, you got to know him pretty well. T- tell me more about that.
1: Before I wrote this article, You know, I asked Andy if he was interested, that he's the editor at Northwest Marshall Magazine. He said, definitely. And then I ran it by the family. I wanted to have Marilyn's blessing before I wrote it. And she said, yes. I says, well, I I really would like to sit down with all of you and, you know, get my facts straight and just get some stories and memories about him." And and this one part didn't make the article, but it was funny. You see, Mike, very gregarious, again, will talk your ear off, but, and he went to the school at Lewis and Clark State College to be a teacher. He and Marilyn both went there. He got his degree, but he never taught in the school because he was terrified of public speaking, believe it or not. And so he actually spent, I think it was like $700, you know, the Dale Carnegie School of, of Sales and Speaking. Mm-hmm. And that's where he overcame his fear of public speaking. And so <laughs> he, you know, according to Marilyn, and I agree. He was a natural-born teacher. He loved to teach people how to fish. He loved to help people hunt, you know, on the duck taxi, guided hunts. Uh, but at the store, any questions you might have, what lure do I use? How do I bait the hook? Can, I, my rod tip broke. Can you fix it for me? You know, he, he would do all that. He did it for complete strangers, but he definitely passed down his love of the outdoors to family. Uh, Annie, I asked her to share a memory, and she said, just a wonderful one and then i got to see a picture of him too is back when she was very young and levi was very young too they would you know mike would take him out in the boat from the resort for an evening of fishing at the end of the workday. mike would stay out really late <laughs> so much so that there was a sleeping bag in the bow of the fishing boat and levi and annie would curl up on the sleeping bag and annie says she remembers you know waking up on the way back pitch black And she would just be in the sleeping bag, looking up at at all the stars that you see out here over Potholes Reservoir. And uh, just, you know, her dad driving them back, safe and sound. And that was a really cool memory that she shared there. And Marilyn pointed out that not only did he teach his kids how to fish and hunt, uh, but he's all in on his grandkids, too. I mean, he goes to their school events and their sports events. But I remember one of his kids, uh, Levi's son, Mason, he actually fished with him in a tournament, the Old Parts Bass Tournament, uh, about three years ago. So, yeah, he, he was a great mentor. Uh, he was a great teacher. And, and he was a really good friend to a lot of people. Uh, in fact, I only, only heard him speak ill of one person in my entire life.
0: That's awesome. He's kind of the uh, epitome of the last cast, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think you are right about that. Yeah. Uh, I, I do have to add, though, this part's funny. You know, there was one person. And Mike and I, we were walking through the resort one day. And I'm not sure, even sure where we were going. I think we were talking about some of the celebrities that have visited the resort. Because there's been quite a few over the years that have come to Mardon. A lot of famous bass anglers. And he asked me about one person in particular. I'm not going to say his name. He's still alive. <laughs> <laughs> he says, do you know so-and-so? And well, I'm like, oh, yeah really popular TV show host uh, out in the Midwest. You know what? What? He's a blanking blank. He's <laughs> 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 like, what do you mean? He says, he came out to this resort, and he was so dismissive. He he had looked down his nose at me, and he didn't like the accommodations. He didn't like this. And he didn't like that. And he was just rude, John. He's <laughs> a blanking blank. <laughs> That's the only person I ever heard of uh, say ill things about. It's one of the few times I ever heard Mike Cuss either. <laughs>
0: well, uh, your article, I think, does a really good job of painting a picture for us about Mike Meesberg, His contributions to the Pacific Northwest, his uh, goal of passing on the love of hunting and fishing to the next generation. So if you get a chance, uh, go to the Northwest Sportsman's Magazine. And that was online, correct, John? Can they find it online?
1: Yep, it's, uh, it's on a blog now. So I believe it's, you can find it on the, the Facebook page for Northwest Sportsman Magazine. And it's going to be in the February edition of Northwest Sportsman Magazine as well.
0: Okay, so go online, take a look at it, watch it for, for it in the uh, upcoming issue, hard copy issue of the Northwest Sportsman's Magazine, uh, get into a little bit more detail about Mike and... And uh, next time you're by Mardon Resort, you know, stop in and say hi. And, you know, maybe uh, if you know something about Mike, share a memory with the folks there. I'm sure they would appreciate it. But, uh, John, I really appreciate you taking the time to tell us about
1: a real great man. Mike was a really great man, and, and I miss him already. I know a lot of other people do, too. He, was, he made a difference. Made a difference to a lot of people and definitely to the fisheries and the conservation Uh, you know habitat and more in this area so it's a loss it's a definite loss
0: well we can all hope to strive to do similar things in our life and uh, use somebody like mike in particular as a model for that so again thank you john appreciate your time my pleasure you have a great day
2: John Cruz, remembering the great Mike Meesberg. If you haven't already, be sure to go check out his article that he wrote in Northwest Sportsman Magazine, uh, A Man Who Made a Difference in the Columbia Basin, Washington. Remembering Mike Meesberg uh, by John Cruz. Great article that kind of explains everything he just talked about.
0: Yeah, that, that, was a, that was a good article. Yeah, he did a good job, and, and yeah. he kind of followed that long course in our conversation, as you just heard. And so if you want a little bit more detail, go find that article. It's also online. So it's going to come out in uh, hard copy print, I believe, in the February yeah. issue. And then it's uh, you can find it online at the Northwest Sportsman's Magazine.
2: Good conversation.
0: and I was just going to say I actually did not realize how many things that Mike was involved with and Bobby mentioned at the beginning how potholes or we were talking about it maybe before mm-hmm. it was built as a part of the Columbia Basin project and it's a collection reservoir for water that's used elsewhere in the in the basin for irrigation it didn't have a whole lot of habitat associated with it and it it kind of improved and then we had Mount St Helens and Mount St Helens Yep. put ash down all over everything, and the bottom of Potholes Reservoir became a moonscape. Yeah, And the fishery, fishing that had been improved since the reservoir was built then went downhill again, and that's where Mike and his dad, yeah. probably started with his dad, and Mike carried it on. Um, they just did some amazing things uh, for fisheries and for waterfowl, and I just was not aware. Yeah. I just didn't know how much stuff they had done. You wish that conservation or the thought
3: of hunting and fishing could be that easy to and I don't want to say easy because I know that he had to go through a lot of right a lot of hurdles to get to the point of doing some of the things that they they yeah. had done right but I, I look at everything today that, that we are going through and
0: man <laughs> well it'd be it, really tough in that oh, environment that yeah. we have today is compared to what they yeah. went through they were supported you know they built sure. these organizations and th- that's how they got a lot of this work done was sure, sure. and that was all supported now it's not supported now that kind of stuff just isn't supported as much no so, yeah anyway mike a great man leaves a legacy i think the resort there there's amazing how much work they've done with that and it's yeah. a destination location uh, some things for his family
2: to really be proud of yeah, exactly. Yeah, we spend a lot of time out of potholes, and I know a lot of our listeners do as well, and we owe a lot of the fun and good times that we have out there, the fishing and the hunting, to Mike. So thank you to John for bringing us all of that, and we're going to move on to a little bit. While we're getting some hard stuff on the water, is there any chances that we're going to be getting out and going ice fishing at time soon? Well, yeah. <laughs> This is a,
0: I mean, I think if you go to the right place, you know, you get up a little bit higher elevation, but right now our discussion about going to Fish Lake, I'm not sure because I've heard three to five inches. I think it depends on what part of the lake that you're on, but it also has like six inches of water and a whole bunch of wet snow Yeah, and it's warm and it's not freezing at night anymore. So I have no idea. I got to believe we're out. We, we, we,
3: we go from, from. Minus fifteen to forty degrees. Yeah, and yeah. One of the boys went out this weekend and said there was three inches of ice and there's six inches of water on top of it, and then snow on top of the the water, and it was kind of spooky. So,
2: and, yeah, and I guess so.
3: It, it's it's not looking good, Britton. It's not looking good
0: no. for the
3: fish well, lake.
2: There's, there's always next year. It's supposed to be sixty down here on Sunday. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, that means forty here. Yeah, and so. That's our problem, and and it's not freezing at night, so we're actually taking ice away now instead of building ice. So that's that's the issue. Yeah, yeah. Chris Marcolin, who was uh, interviewed in our previous podcast, if you didn't listen to that, go back and have a listen to that episode. He has been doing fairly well on some lakes up north, but he's getting some elevation. Yeah,
2: yeah he sent me some images of uh, using SD drift jig. Yep. On some burb, he loves his burbit. Yeah. He loves
3: he loves fishing Burbot at night.
0: He's doing really well with that yeah. new SD jig and catching the the bourbon in the shallows. That's a pretty neat thing. Yeah, yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. I it mean, would be a lot of fun. But he's got this. I know he has the same conditions, and I saw Eric Magnuson too post some pictures of some fishing he's doing. And you got to wear rubber boots, man. There's so much water on yeah. the top of the ice, and and to me, especially the photo I saw from Eric Magnuson. <laughs> Holy crap! That ice did not look good.
3: Was, was That it, guy's was crazy. It, was it worse than that first time we went up to where was it? Eileen,
0: up, oh, up in BC. No, that was thick. I'm, this ice was like clear, and it looked very. Of course, you know how it is in a yeah. picture, but yeah. it looked thin to me, and I'm like, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I know Eric knows. He, you know, he's good at that kind of stuff, but I. I was just
2: looking at that picture. Yeah, he, he understands that the, the ice situation isn't as great this year, and he's such a hardcore ice fisherman that take the life vest out, we're going to catch some fish.
0: Yeah, I'm sure he tiptoed out there where he went, well, I could I could probably push off the but bottom. But don't
2: move at all. If
0: I don't move. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, my God. You know
3: what? No, that ain't happening. <laughs> it's he just was, not happening.
2: He was using Bobby's favorite lure through the ice. The Promise Keeper, little sixteenth ounce Promise Keeper. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah. he did well.
0: He yeah. did well. We did that up in BC, Mark Roseboom and I. Yeah. With yeah, the you are catching those browns? Yeah, well, the... Uh, um, Brookies.
3: Brookies. What are those, the, the Brookies, Brookies. Yeah. And they hey, loved uh, the Promise Keeper. No, you were using You, caught, you caught a lot of both. Them. Did you?
2: you no. He, yeah. He used the little uh, chartreuse Promise Keeper. There's some really good images they got up there. Yeah. And they caught some toads some toads that was fun that was freaky ice too but it was 10 inches thick
0: it was clear it was just as clear a, clear as a window pane and it was 10 inches it thick. was 10 inches thick Holy but when you walked out on it God. yeah i i went back to the shore and <laughs> mark says mark said no no it's it's 10 inches maybe 12 i'm like bs <laughs> he goes trust me it is <laughs>
2: You weren't. You were just fishing. You weren't filming a show for that. I wasn't
0: filming a show. I I did some. You got some content. I did some filming, but not for a show. I fished. I (laughs) pretty much just fished. It was fun.
2: You guys used the Crippler too through the ice for that trip as well, I believe. We use the Crippler
0: mostly. That's probably what we use the most of. And boy, those brookies ate up the Crippler. That was their really their favorite. Yeah. Oh God.
3: Well, you know it's it's kind of funny the the different styles according to different fish. You know, we're fishing really small petite stuff for perch, yeah. you know, the, the 16th ounce sonic bait fish and tipped with a glow hook or something like that and and a little bit of uh, maggots or wax worms or mm-hmm. something and then you get to the brookies, they like that larger profile mm-hmm. or the cooney where we're fishing with a sling blade and a, mm-hmm. and a uh, glow hook. Yeah. Everything's got a little bit different
0: Style to attraction and and bringing fish in and and catching fish. Those brookies, they were funny because you'd put the crip lure down. And remember, I told you it was clear ice. Yeah, yeah. And we were in fairly shallow water, I think 8 to 10 feet, so you could see the bottom. You'd put the crip lure down, and you'd jig, and you'd see it on Mark's Garmin, the fish coming from a distance. And then you would look, and you would see them coming. (laughs) Because the ice was so clear and you're just like, Oh, here they come, you know, <laughs> but you'd move that crip lure, let it wobble. Cause that's what it does when you use yeah. it as a jig for yeah. that kind of stuff. As you know, if you pull behind a boat, it gets lots of wobble, but on its drop, it wobbles and right. those
2: brookies love that. They're like, oh, something dead's coming through the ice. I've got to <laughs> eat it.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> perfect. Perfect. That's fun. So yeah, next year when you're getting ready to fill your ice fishing tackle box, just remember this conversation because it doesn't look like there's going to be a whole (laughs) lot of ice fishing in the Northwest this year.
3: We've picked a year to uh, push the ice program. When there's no ice. Yeah, we got El Nemo going. El Nemo. (laughs) El Nemo. (laughs) El Nemo, and we've got no ice practically. But I'll tell you what, Eric and... and, uh, chris and a few of the other guys you know they're they're out there making it making it happen one way or another wear the life vest and and your uh your tongs for uh dragging yourself back up on the ice and they're they're working the program yeah i'm not sure if i if i i'm i'm quite into that
2: <laughs> uh, i'd like yeah to... no i'm sitting here yeah. looking at you know some news and notes and you know, type in ice fishing and first thing that pops up is fisherman dies after falling through ice atop Minnesota Lake. Yeah, if they're falling through in Minnesota, let's let's just be careful out there (laughs) (laughs) everyone. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So we are going to wrap this up and refill our coffee and sit here and talk for another hour and then get to work, maybe. (laughs) I don't know. Anyway, thanks for joining us until next week. We will talk to you later.